Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 8. We'll be studying verses 31 to 59 this morning. John 8, verses 31 to 59. Due to the length of the passage, I'm going to just jump in and read at verses 31 to 33 to get us started. If you're following along in the Bible provided in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on 894, page 894. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The debate will continue. But before we dive into this particular debate, I'd like to point out something that you may not know have happened this week. The Queen of England died. I say you may not know. It's impossible for you not to know. In fact, I was driving up in Fort Myers yesterday, and it was on a billboard. I was like, somebody spent thousands of dollars to, to pay for a tribute to the Queen of England. Nothing to do with the United States. And indeed, any time a historical figure passes away, it's of great import. But what's of even more relevance to our particular discussion today is that yesterday morning... Prince Charles Philip Arthur George was proclaimed King of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. His royal name is King Charles III, and he is, this is mind-blowing, you need to catch the weight of what happened yesterday. He is the 41st monarch in a line that traces its origins to the Norman king, William the Conqueror, who captured the English throne back in 1066. So yesterday's events reflected proclamations announcing new kings and queens that date back almost a thousand years. It's a huge deal. What blows my mind about these events is that it portrays for us what may be the last family line on the planet that seems to matter to us. We're fascinated by it. Despite the Enlightenment, despite our American individualism, we just can't get away from the fact that over there across the sea, there actually is this lineage of people who seem born to rule. I mean, just think about the few years. I'm going to date myself here, but it was actually about 25 years ago. I remember my mother crying over breakfast at Princess Diana's death. And I remember asking, who is that? And it wasn't even the queen. It was somebody connected, somebody who married in. I remember seeing those, those pictures of what happened in that tunnel. I, it's just, I'm... I'm I'm an American dude. I have very little inclination for what's going on with princes and princesses, and yet that is something that's stuck in my mind. Or I remember 
Like actually, I'll admit, I saw it. I didn't see the whole thing, but you couldn't help but not see it. The marriage of William and Kate. It was like, oh, big royal wedding, you know, like everything's shutting down. Even the United States, people are wanting to see this. They're fascinated with this lineage of royalty. And then, I really despise this one, but you can't get away from it. The whole Harry and Meghan drama. Just consult your local tabloid if you need an update. Or who would have ever been able to predict the popularity of Netflix, The Crown? People like rushing to binge watch this basic history of the queen. I think it's because we know that there's something significant there. there there's something that seems right about like a, a royal line. This uh, idea of the divine right of kings, it certainly flies in the face of everything we know as as Americans, and yet there does seem to be, as we even read the, the, the scriptures, like, oh, David's son became the king. It was a big deal that Jesus was the descendant of David. Like, we, we get the idea that there's something right and true about that. And I want to do a little thought experiment with you in light of our fascination with such family lines. What if you sent off for one of those DNA tests? And you discovered that you were part of the royal line. I mean, could you imagine? Uh, or what if you, your husband or your wife was? Like you had married in. How would your life be different? Or maybe imagine it from the other direction. Let's not even think of uh, the royal line. Let's think of a reprehensible line. You send off for the cool DNA test that somebody bought you for your birthday, and you find out that you're related to an Adolf Hitler, a Benedict Arnold. How does that, that change uh, your, your view? Politically, these kinds of things are actually ir irrelevant to us. The fascinating thing to me from a news perspective is that Americans are forced to contemplate, does it even matter that uh, King Charles is the king? Like, what does it even mean? Because we're like, politically, it doesn't happen that way. You know, we like stories in which the dude from the backwoods becomes the president. Anybody familiar with Abraham Lincoln? I mean, like, the fact that he's just out there chopping down cherry trees or whatever it is he was doing, you're like, oh, yeah, he's a homegrown guy. And look, he came up and he was now a ruler. Nobody wants to know that he had royalty in his blood. We like the fact that he came from the backwoods. So politically, this means nothing to us. Uh, if, if you found out, it'd be like, oh, well, that's cool. Doesn't really matter. Bloodline, it's not that big a deal. Physically, it's... It's a big deal, though. Politically, our lineage to us, I mean, as Americans, it doesn't matter. Uh, but physically, it does. Does it not? Those pesky doctors always asking you, so is there a history of high blood pressure or heart disease in your family? Like, get out of my business. You don't need to know my medical history. In fact, he does. <laughs> he does need to know. And you know that he needs to know, and so you tell him. It matters. Politically for us, lineage doesn't matter. Physically for us, we're like, okay, lineage matters. It's a big deal. We get it. 
But what about spiritually? If lineage used to matter politically, used to. If lineage still matters physically, does it not stand to reason that maybe it could matter spiritually? Is it not possible that your immortal soul could belong to a royal line or a reprehensible one? As this debate of Jesus with the religious leaders at the Feast of Tabernacles climaxes to a close, the facts regarding one's spiritual family tree will come into focus. If you want to understand what's going on in these last few paragraphs of John chapter 8, you need to understand that it is a debate to the death over spiritual lineage. That's what it's all about. Contrary to the American instinct that spiritual lineage is some kind of novelty, Jesus discloses that it is a necessity. In other words, this final debate that we're going to see here in John 8, 31 to 59 will show you that your soul, hear this, your soul is more like your physical lineage and less like your political or financial one. You must be part of the right spiritual family. And so this debate will disclose two birthmarks of those who legitimately belong to the lineage of God. That's what you're listening out for here. If you're a note taker, or if you're not, you want to catch what the Spirit is trying to say to us this morning, you need to listen out for the two birthmarks of the legit lineage of God. This is something of a spiritual DNA test. And what will happen here is it will be assuring for some of you. That's my prayer, that some of you would walk away from here so assured and relieved and encouraged, excited even. And that some, it will be convicting. It will challenge you to consider your eternal destiny. It is interesting to me that one text could do two such disparate things, and yet it will. So we're going to follow the argument, and we want to find out the two birthmarks of those who legitimately belong to the lineage of God. But I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to look for it in the text. I, I'm going to follow uh, this debate. It is a debate. It's, I mean, it is a heated debate. It is back and forth. Uh, he said, she said, or basically he said, they said. And it's going to go back and forth and back and forth, and I need you just to stick with me and follow the fight for a second and be trying to find the facts about who's in the family of God and who's not. You try to discern those birthmarks for yourself. Don't worry. In about 20 or 25 minutes, I will make it plain, but I'd rather you see it for yourself. Now, to organize even my following of the debate, I need to, to give you um, some insight into how this thing takes place. I, I like to give you a visual. You know, sometimes we like outlines like Roman numeral one, two, and three. 
Uh, if you're a visual person, you're going to love this. I know there's one guy in here who can't imagine things. I'm sorry, Josh. You're going to have to just do your best. But for those of us who are visual people, we can imagine things. Uh, you, you, what you need to imagine here is a tug of war. That's what this passage is. It is a tug of war. You have on the, on the one side of the big muddy pit all the Jewish religious leaders, and they're holding on to this, this rope, and we'll just call it divine lineage. And it's a whole mass of them. I mean, Jesus is ganged up on here. I mean, they're coming at him from every side. They're taking cheap shots. You're going to see it. They're giving it everything they've got. If you can get a mental picture of a bunch of religious leaders pulling with all their might on one side of a pit, you're going to get the, the picture here. And this is what you need to see on the other it is Jesus standing alone, like the classic strong man of old, just like holding on to the rope with basically one hand and letting them kind of pull and tug and he will yank and yank and yank. And I think you know where it ends. They fall on their faces and he's holding the line. Now that being said, to, to narrate a tug of war is a difficult thing. I don't know how to put Roman numerals to that. All I know is how to get to the back and forth. And maybe for the sake of simplicity, like if I was like a sportscaster trying to break down, you know, how this tug of war is unfolding, we could see it taking place in like maybe three rounds or three segments. Just, if we were to go back and narrate it, we'd be like, oh, there was that first one. Remember when that happened? And there's the second and the third. This is not what I want you to get from this. So if you don't take notes about what these three movements are, don't care. Doesn't matter. What you need to be listening out to for are the birthmarks of those who really belong to the family of God. Now, we noticed here in verses uh, 31 and 32 that this thing starts off with Jesus addressing this group of people who believed in him. We just read that. And what is it that he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples? John is very much concerned about who's truly believing, and he seems to remember Jesus saying this stuff more than the other guys do. I mean, you get over and over again throughout John that there's a difference between a bona fide belief and bogus belief. And once again, Jesus is trying to clarify, hey, great, I'm glad some of you people believed in me. Hey, I want to make something clear. If you really believe in me, here's how you're going to know it. You're going to abide in my words. You're going to remain in my teaching. You're going to stick with it. Whatever I say is not going to offend you. You're going to keep following me. And when you do that, there's going to be a consequence. It's great consequence. You'll know the truth because I have the truth. And then we're going to follow this to its last step. Ready for the third consequence? The truth will set you free. Now, free from what? He hasn't defined that yet. We'll find out. But the truth is something that will liberate them in some way. But here's what happens next. Here's where the debate starts. This is the official um, like blowing of the whistle so that the tug of war can start. The, it seems that some of these people who profess to believe or maybe even some of these religious leaders who have been arguing with Jesus through the whole thing are like, what? They make their first pull at this point and they say, how are you going to say that we need to be free from anything when we are the seed of Abraham? Greek word sperma of Abraham. Descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, that means that we're not, we're not in liberation, I mean, we don't need liberation from anything, which is, um, anybody knows anything about Jewish history, it's kind of a funny thing to say, right? <laughs> I mean, 
these people had had their rear ends kicked by the last five major superpowers. I mean, just, I mean, they had been literally dominated. Or do you remember what happened in Exodus? They were enslaved. You know how it is. Some people just believe what they want to believe. The Jewish people, actually, of this particular time, they are so prideful about their connection to Abraham that they did a little wordsmithing and said, well, we weren't actually enslaved to anyone. Uh, we were enslaved only to God. God was just punishing us. Uh, if you are a history fan and, and you like these kinds of details, um, that one, <laughs> there was one instance in which uh, Rabbi Akaba is credited with saying that the Israelites are king's sons. They are sons of the kingdom. And in light of that, they said that no foreign nation had truly subjugated them, but those foreign nations were instruments of God, therefore they were still only under God's service. You get the like wordsmithing going on? Like, okay, well, I know we're, we were kind of enslaved, but ultimately since God's sovereign over all, we weren't really enslaved because ultimately he was doing it. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't admit it. And so, anyway, they think that Jesus is talking about something political. So, they're pulling on this saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone. We're sons of Abraham. We're in Abraham's line. That's a special line. And uh, Jesus, with his one hand on the rope, is going to counter here in verses 34 to 38. Notice what Jesus says. He answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Now, I want you to note what's going on here. In this first round of the tug of war, what we have here is Jesus establishing that there really are two families. There are two families. Now, they would already buy into that. They would say that there's the family of Abraham, and then there's everybody else. And yet, what Jesus is going to do here is to open up the possibility that they're not actually part of the family of Abraham. He starts off by telling them a story that they all would have known. Like, for us, when he gives a slavery analogy, we have zero clue what he's talking about because none of us know a real slave. Just, it's been abolished. Maybe you know someone who knows someone who has experienced something horrific, but slavery is something that has been virtually abolished in the first world. And so, because of that, like, we don't really get the metaphor, but in a world where probably two-thirds of the Roman population was in slavery, they would have been in great familiarity with the analogy here. It's pretty, pretty simple. Jesus is saying, like, hey, some people are part of the house, and some people only live in the house. You get the difference between the two? Uh, the son, for example, the oldest son, he's part of the house. He would have the authority of the father. He's a permanent feature. He ain't going nowhere. Slaves, they could be sold. They could be traded. They could be killed. They're temporary. So he's saying, like, hey, here's the deal. I'm giving you an analogy. Let me give you the picture. There's a son who will be in the house forever, and then there's a group of people who are slaves. You got the mental picture? They're temporary. 
And so in light of that, how do we know who is the permanent fixture and who's temporary? How do we know who's actually in the line? Are you getting it? So Jesus explains. If he gives the picture and then he gives the point. He said, the son has to set you free. I know that you say you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And sorry, note verse 34, who everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What is he saying? He's saying, all right, um, understand two categories, permanent feature or temporary. How do we know who a slave is? Well, a slave is one who is ensnared to sin. They can't escape it. And what does he point out? You guys are trying to kill me. Just in case you didn't know, Ten Commandments review. What is trying to kill someone? A sin. <laughs> he says, here you are. You can't help it. You just want to murder me. Who's the son and who's the slave? That's what he's pointing out. He's saying, I am of my father. I say everything that he tells me to say. I have spoken the truth to you. And what are you guys trying to do? What are you saying through your actions? You're saying that you're enslaved to sin, and therefore you're not part of the family of God. You're part of some other family. Now, here's what's fun, folks. He hasn't said what family they belong to yet. All he has said is that they are just not part of the family they think they're of, even though he will acknowledge that they are physical descendants of Abraham. Round one, Jesus pulls back. But notice the second round. If the first round centered around these uh, two families, uh, the second round of this debate is going to center around uh, the features of those who belong to the true family, the features. Uh, I don't want to be like ultra graphic, but I mean, I think that we could imagine here that if we're talking about if someone is a legitimate descendant of, uh, of a parent, that we would be looking for certain features with that individual, right? Uh, there, there would be certain physical characteristics that should mark to whom they belong. In fact, I get asked that all the time. If you were to see a picture of me with my family, like as a 16-year-old, they're like, is he adopted? Like, I, I do not look like the rest of the group. Um, I don't like the fact that people are questioning my legitimacy as a son. I'll just go ahead and say that, but... I get the picture, right? You would expect to see certain features in a son. What Jesus is going to do here is point out the features of those who truly are in the family of God. Now, notice how he does it because it starts off with them objecting to what Jesus said. So here they are mustering all their strength, and notice how they pull back. They stick to their pad line. They answered him, verse 39, Abraham is our father. They already said, we're the seed of Abraham. Now they're saying, Abraham is our father. They're really leaning in on this physical descent thing. And Jesus, with one strong arm, pulls back. If you were Abraham's children, if you were in his line, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Note, again, he hasn't told them who he thinks their father is, but you get the idea, like, all right, if you're of Abraham, you would do the stuff Abraham did. You remember when we read back in Genesis 12, just a few minutes ago? That's your first introduction to Abraham in the Bible, and here's what you got. 
You've got an old man who's rich and wealthy, dwelling in paganism, and he hears the voice of God saying, go to this place where you don't own anything, and you will own it, and you're going to have an amazing, huge family that's going to bring blessing to the world. And you know what he does? He listens to the voice of God, he trusts it, and he obeys. Are they doing that? Are they in any way resembling what Abraham's like? I mean, this guy who was constantly walking by faith, was he perfect? No, but he was constantly believing God and acting in response to that. They are not believing God, and they are not acting in response to that. That's all he's saying. You're not of him. You're of someone else. Well, now things get fun because they are going to hear the counter of Jesus Again, or at least they're going to uh, object to this. Notice this. They respond because they're getting what he's saying at this point. Look at verse 41b. So go to the middle. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, that's a fascinating way to counter. They're saying, you're implying, they're getting it. Don't worry, they're not stupid. I know sometimes we think that uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are just, they don't know anything but a literal interpretation of the Bible. They are often literal, but they are not merely literal. They're starting to understand at this point that Jesus is not just talking about uh, physical descent. He's talking about like spiritual behavior, moral descent. Like if you get moral attributes, they're picking up on that and they're saying, we're not illegitimate children. We are in the spiritual line, not just of Abraham, but notice this, we have one father, even God. We're picking up what you're laying down. Some people even believe that maybe they are actually responding here to some of the popular objections to Jesus as being born of some kind of illegitimate line. Like, hey, unlike you, who, and this is funny, the early Jews had started a rumor that Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph during their engagement, and they said that he had been with a, she had been with a Roman soldier named Panthera, so they even gave the dude a name, and that Jesus was the result of that fornication. So if that is the inside joke that had been floating around, they're naturally trying to say, oh, we're the ones of legit birth. In fact, we're of God. You're the one that's illegitimate. But notice how Jesus counters. Again, with the tug of his strong arm, he says to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Notice this, please. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Notice that. It is impossible for you to understand what I am saying. You cannot do it. You do not have the capacity to get what I am saying. I am from God. It is evident that I am from God, but you will never be able to ascertain that on your own because you do not have the ability to do so. You're of, you're, you're of a different species, not even a different family line. We're not even speaking the same language. That's what it means to be apart from Christ. You cannot understand him. I heard a humorous um, frustration voiced by my wife the other day. I never thought I'd hear these words in my life. This, this is what I heard. 
Who put a dog translator app on my phone? It's like a dog translator. There's an app for that? The kids took my wife's phone and got a dog translator. And they were trying to get the dog to bark and get the and find out what he was saying. You know, out of the mouth of babes. You'd be better off trying to understand or have a conversation with a dog than you would actually being able to understand the words of Christ unless he radically intervenes in your life. He's saying, you cannot understand what I'm saying. That's why you don't, I'm from God, it's evident. And you're not getting it. And if you were of my lineage, you would speak my language. We'll keep reading, sorry. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Man, that had to hurt. And your will, he's going to lean in on this. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Notice the attributes of the devil. All right, if you're going to say that they are of devilish descent, you have to point out some features, right? So let's say, hypothetically speaking, the devil had brown hair. You would need to be looking for some brown hair. Don't worry. I said brown hair on purpose, not implying anything, but you would know what features to look for. Okay, so what are the features of the devil that they would be displaying? Well, we know a couple things about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, insofar as he tried to plummet the entire human race into death. I mean, the first time he shows up in Genesis chapter 3, what is he doing? He's deceiving so as to bring death. What are they doing, by the way, ever since chapter 5, they've been trying to kill Jesus. And what is their means for bringing death to him? Deceit. They're lying about what Jesus is saying, just like the devil, first time we ever meet the dude, is lying to Eve about the goodness of God and what he had said. So Jesus is making a pretty strong case. He's not just, you know, like insulting them, saying, you're the devil. He's actually saying, okay, you're of the devil, and here's why. The devil's a liar, and he has a penchant for murder. You guys are liars, and you have a penchant for murder. He really leans in on the truth thing. I'm, I'm in the middle of verse 44 here. It says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But, notice this, he's going to get back to himself. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Do you notice that? Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Not for any other reason. You just don't want the truth. Friends, this is a real, like, spiritual DNA character trait of people who are not in the family of God. They do not want to hear the truth. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He knows that they couldn't legitimately convict him of sin. They made up all kinds of false accusations. But he had answered every one of them. They had not legitimately proven him to be one who had sinned in any way. And he's saying, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe? I'm telling you the truth. And then here's the explanation. It gets down. This is bottom line. This is the last part of the argument. This is Jesus' final tug of this round. He's yanking them a little closer to the mud pit. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I think this is pretty easy to follow. 
People who are of God's lineage, they are of God, they hear what God says. People who are not of God's lineage, they do not hear what God says. The Greek word there, translated here, could also be translated heed, obey, akuo, hear, heed. Yeah, they can listen to what he's physically saying. It's not like, you know, it's been bleeped out. But they don't want to heed it. They don't want to obey it. They can't. They don't have the ability to do so. And, and what you're beginning to see is the birthmark of this bastard line of God. You're seeing the character traits of the truly illegitimate children. Now, I've asked you to listen for the birthmarks of those who are bona fide members of the family of God. But just by maybe working from the opposite back to the reality. What's true of those who are not of God? They don't hear or heed the words of Jesus. They don't love him. I need to move on. The point is that the debate over this lineage rages. It's getting heated. I mean, these guys are working themselves up into a frenzy. Jesus just continues to pull. He has a steady grip. He pulls firmly. And despite their gritted teeth and dug-in heels, the religious leaders itch all the more closely to the mud. Yet what's going to happen here in this final round is they're going to muster up this climactic expenditure of energy in their attempt to validate their special lineage of God. I mean, you're going to see them pull out all the stops here, and if you're reading this just from a, like, a narrative perspective, it is escalating, it is escalating, and it reaches a fever pitch at this point. And like you can imagine, if you were in that tug of war, you know, like, all right, I'm going to give everything, it's my last pull. Here's their last pull. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's the best they got. I mean, here we are in a formal debate, the opponents losing their grip, and they resort to what we call in the debating world ad hominem attacks. If you've ever heard that line of argument with your kids, you know, they're arguing over something and then somebody just finally blurts out, you're stupid. Okay, debate over. You didn't prove anything. I mean, all they're doing here is like they're so frustrated, they use their best energy to say, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. And we, we hear that and we're like, ooh, burn. And look, I, you, Samaritan, really? What does that even mean? Well, it would have been an insult to them. In fact, uh, not a laughing matter at all, but let me just be really frank. If I understand the cultural implications of being called a Samaritan, it would be about as offensive as using the N-word in our modern vernacular. They were considered to be illegitimate heirs. I mean, this was highly offensive. It was a racial slur. Not only are they saying that Jesus is not of Jewish lineage, but they're also saying that he's He's mixed-blooded. He has no hope of actually being able to receive divine promises. For us, it just seems like a historical novelty, but it is hard to get 
the hatred that the Jews and the Samaritans had for one another. In fact, in that day, documents record that there was a debate raging between the two of them in which they kept trying to undermine one another's lineage. And guess what they were trying to trace it back to? Not just Abraham, but Adam. In fact, the Samaritans would even say, uh, I mean, the Jews would say of the Samaritans that uh, they were actually born of the line of Cain somehow. You, you know, this sounds kind of weird to you, but like if you ever like read over in uh, Timothy, there's going to be this, this like, don't get in debates about endless genealogies. And you're like, who in the world would ever be debating about endless genealogies? They would. And you know why? It's because in strong group cultures, family line matters. For us, it's just like, oh, that's kind of cool. We don't really know that much about family lineage, but for them, it was a big deal. So saying that Jesus was not authentically of Jewish descent, that he was a half-breed of some kind, was an insult. And then, of course, the, well, you have a demon. For them, that was just, okay, well, just say that he's satanic. You know, they're, they're just trying to actually counter what he's saying. They can't imagine someone being sent by God, undermining their authority, since they think that they're of God. They think he's satanically empowered. And what does Jesus do? He counters. His response is pretty simple. Notice this. First, he's not even going to acknowledge the Samaritan comment because everyone already knew he was from Galilee. They've been saying that all along. He knew that was just inconsistent. He doesn't acknowledge it. Notice what he does say, though. I do not have a demon, verse 49, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. They are saying... You are of uh, disputed lineage yourself. You know, like, this is their best insult. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't have to prove who I am. I'm here, and I'm honoring the Father. And guess what? The Father is honoring me. I do not have to answer your charge. They already know the Father is honoring him because the Father had empowered him to do these amazing miracles. There wasn't anybody in their religious circles who could do the stuff that Jesus was doing. It was so obvious that he was from God. He says, look. The Father's already honoring me. I'm not even answering this question. Hey, here's the big deal for you. And notice the compassion in this. I don't think this is an insult. I think it's an act of compassion. He says to them in verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Notice that he, in the middle of the debate, appeals to those who are fighting against him and says, just believe me, just keep my word. You can avoid death. That's already been defined in John as eternal separation from God. They knew of physical death. Of course, Jesus is talking about resurrection, not unto judgment, but resurrection unto life. But they don't get it. Notice they try to pull back. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? Now, if anybody's coming along, let's admit, I want to, like, I'll stand on this side, because I want to let you see things from their perspective. If anybody hears someone else say, hey, you do whatever I say and you're not going to die. Like, it would kind of give you the impression, like, whoa, that's a big claim. Because all of the greatest religious heroes that we know have all died, and you're saying that you're greater than that? Like, if all we got to do is listen to you, and you're, we're going to escape death? So naturally, they're going to be like, you're greater than Abraham? 
question mark? You're greater than the prophets? Question mark? Like you'd have to be in a totally different category of human being or not even human at all. Who are you saying that you are? They couldn't imagine anybody of even half Jewish origin saying something like that. Who do you say that you are? Come out and say it. No hints, no games. Lay it on the table. Tell us who you are. And notice what Jesus does again. He leads up to his climactic final pull. He says in verse 54, If I glorify myself... My glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Notice that. The same Father that you're claiming lineage to, the one that you say is your God, that's the one that's been glorifying me. I don't have to say anything. You don't know him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. And now notice this. He's saying, look, I've already got divine validation from the Father, but you're asking about Abraham in particular. Let me tell you something about him. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, that's weird. Uh, Jesus is probably 35 36 years old at this point. We can debate that another time. But he's in his mid-30s. This is fun. You ready for a fun fact? There is about as much space in time between us and Jesus as there was between Jesus and Abraham. 2,000 years. So this is a really odd statement to make. Abraham, the guy that you guys all claim to be, you know, uh, descendants of, he already saw my day. He saw this time. He saw me here. He saw me now. And he rejoiced in it. He was glad about it. What in the world? Well, Abraham, friends, throughout the Old Testament, and it's picked up on by the apostles in the New Testament was that man who was characterized by faith. Fred, I like the way that you prayed this morning and you were pointing out like, wow, who would we respond like Abraham? The, the way that Abraham was able to do that, and you noted this, but this is good for us to remember, is because he could see something that no one else could see. Through the eyes of faith, he saw the promises of a descendant of dominance through a nation, and he acted on it. Abraham didn't like physically have a vision of Jesus, but everything that he was acting on, everything that he was envisioning that enabled his radical obedience was fulfilled in what Jesus was doing in that very moment. He was that ultimate seed who would bring about that blessing for the entire world. Jesus is saying, I'm the hope of Abraham. And so... With energy waning, they try to tug back one more time and interpret the statement literally again, and they say, you're not even 50 years old. They just round up. You're not even 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? And what happens here, we'll put this thing to bed. And I know this is a very famous passage, But I want you to understand two things before we read it. One, 
Jesus had a firm handle on grammar. He's not ignorant. He knows how to get his subjects to agree with his verbs. He knows not to mix tenses in the middle of a sentence. Like there, There's nothing about in the New Testament that implies that Jesus was some kind of a bumpkin that didn't know how to speak. The second thing that I'd point out, because I'm going to read straight from 58 to 59, is if whatever we're going to see in 58 is just bad grammar, here's a question for you. And I say this especially to those of you who may have even questioned whether or not Jesus ever really claims to be God or not. If Jesus just made a poor grammar mistake, why will they pick up stones to kill him? But what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, in a a rabbinically authoritative statement, listen to what I'm going to say. Here it is, just a few simple words. Before Abraham was, I am. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was. And yet he says, before Abraham was, I am. We've seen this two other times Throughout this argument so far where Jesus makes that I am statement that could kind of sound like he's making himself out to be Yahweh, the great I am from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. But in both of those other contexts, admittedly, I didn't lean in on it too much because it could have been interpreted in some way as like, oh, I am who you think that I am or whatever. Here, the grammar makes no sense at all unless Jesus is saying That I am not just, listen to this, I am not just of Abraham's line. Abraham's of my line. I am the one that he was looking to. I am not just his descendant. He descended from me. Jesus is saying that he's not only with God and from God, that is true, that is fact. He is distinct in person, but he is the same in essence. He is the I am. And that is why, friends, they pick up stones to throw at him. And I want you to know that they lose their jump. Because there is no way in that political situation that they would be able to get away with stoning a person just whenever they wanted to. As, as even Jewish rulers, they did not have the capacity for capital execution. They had to get any executions filtered through Rome. So if they go murdering some dude in the middle of the temple, they're going to kill themselves. The guards are going to swoop in and they will die. Have you ever been Please don't testify out loud, but think in your heart. Have you ever been so angry where you thought that you would literally kill someone and didn't care about the consequences? You feel it? That's what they felt. They're going to get their mess together, and they're going to figure out a way to do this through their proper channels, but I want you to know that it must take a pretty climactic statement for them to ever be in that frame of mind in the first place. And it is none other than Jesus saying, I'm not just of Abraham, I am greater than Abraham. Abraham looked to me. And yet God protected him. It says they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
It's, I, don't, I don't know why it's translated that way. It's actually passive. Jesus was hid. God enabled it for him to just slip right out of there because it wasn't his time yet. So as we worked our way through this, did you see the birthmarks of those who legitimately belong to God? The, the, the passage is arguing for some kind of um, connection. There's, there's a lineage that you need to be a part of. So what does that look like? It's not as obvious as it seems. I want to tell you a story, and I'm taking this uh, from someone else, but it was so good I, don't, I can't improve upon it. I first found this uh, reading behind R. Kent Hughes. He tells the story of uh, Edmund Goss. He's a famous Cambridge professor. And in his bio- autobiography, Father and Son, he tells how he finally rejected the godly heritage and faith of his parents. In one particularly sad chapter, he recounts how his loving father was so desirous that his 10-year-old be baptized that he convinced the elders to interview Edmund, who says he, and I'm quoting here, sat on a sofa in full lamplight and testified my faith in the atonement with a fluency that surprised myself and my interviewer. He was even weeping like a child. It was a perfect performance. But Edmund Goss did not have grace in his life. It was all an act. And so we too need to examine ourselves. Okay, well, you, you would just naturally think, it's natural to think. Forget the Pharisees for a second. Just think about us. Like, I grew up in a good home. Got some good genes. You should meet my dad. He's a hardworking guy. He's been married to the same woman for over 40 years. You know, I, yeah, my family, it was a little bit of a mess. But, I mean, to be honest, I've grown up in church. Been around, around, around Jesus my whole life. Read the Bible through several times. I used to go to VBS as a kid, show up at Sunday school. I mean, come on, give me some credit. I'm here this morning. If you ever talk to yourself that way, you would know what it's like to be on this side of the pit. If you ever justify yourself in that way, that's you pulling for some kind of divine lineage, for some kind of connection to God. It could have been that you were, you were sprinkled or quote-unquote, baptized into the church or confirmed or whatever, and you're like, that, that meant something. I mean, that didn't, didn't mean nothing, right? It's got to count for something. I want you to understand that the problem that plagued these particular men plagues us still today. Assuming that, that certain uh, professions or associations place us in the family of God, I know sometimes I say this for effect. I'm going to say this based on the facts of the text. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There is nothing about where you were born or how you were brought up or what your associations are that in any way, shape, or form places you in the kingdom of God. That's not a birthmark of those who are begotten of God. So dispelling that myth for a second, what is? What are the birthmarks? There are two here. The first is very simple, faith in Jesus as Lord. 
faith in Jesus as Lord. That's a birthmark of one who is begotten of God. Divine life has been imparted to them. Here's the crazy thing. Jesus made it clear multiple times throughout this text, there ain't no way that you could ever learn who Jesus is, hear him out, follow him, acknowledge him as Lord, see him for who he claims to be, unless God had given you some kind of spiritual life. Did you hear it even in the songs that we were singing this morning? You know, we, well, we don't have the songs in here anymore. Can't help with that. I mean, Mark even called them out. I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. But your spirit came within and gave me peace and joy. I mean, like, do do you understand that you had zero capacity? And so how do you know if you're really, like, part of the family of God, if you're in his line? You have faith in Jesus as Lord. By the way, I added the as Lord on purpose. Faith in Jesus as Lord, all caps, if you're a King James Bible reader. Faith in Jesus as the I am. You're like, I don't have much of a religious history. I don't understand this I am stuff that blew right by me. Okay, well, let me help you this way. Faith in Jesus as the exclusive God of the universe. Let me make it a little more practical. Faith in Jesus as the ultimate, the highest. Not just up there in your list, like in your top five, we're talking at the very top. On account of who he is, that's who he is, but also on account of what he's done. He's accomplished redemption for you. You could do jack squat to get yourself into this family. He included you by entering into your human condition, obeying in the ways that you couldn't, dying and suffering and enduring the wrath of God for all the ways that you've broken his law, and then rising again, offering eternal life to all who will believe in him. That is something that he did. And if you're believing that, if you have faith in him, if you are trusting in him as Lord, as ultimate, you're part of the family of God, friends. That is good news this morning. It was otherwise impossible to you. It's not because you're smart. It's not because you figured it out. It's not because you basically soaked it in for hanging out with church people long enough. It's because God gave you life. And that's, that's, that should be clarifying for those of you who think you're in. Air quotes. Notice the air quotes. Please. Get it. I will butcher some grammar here for the sake of effect. Jesus, his grammar was great. Mine's going to be bad. It's going to be on purpose because I want you to remember this. I hope it makes you cringe if you're a big grammar fan. Ready? God ain't got no grandchildren. He ain't got none. I don't care who your mama was, who your daddy was. I don't care if he was a preacher. I don't care if he was a missionary. I don't care if he was a... Also, this is a work that must be done in your own heart, in your own life, seeing and savoring Jesus as the Lord, the I am, the ultimate. His actions having accomplished everything that you needed to be in the kingdom. That is such good news. But it is a warning to those of you who think you're in on any other account. Nothing gets you in except for that. Can I tell you that this is also, this is really comforting news. 
this is so good for those of you who think you're out. See, some of you are like, man, you, I had a really good upbringing, but some of you are like, no, I didn't. Man, you don't know me. You don't know the family that I come from. You don't know the junk that I have done. Like, there's no way that I could be part of this family. Or maybe if I do, like, I've got to work it up. But, like, I don't know that I could actually work up enough to get in. I, like, I can't even make this happen. Hey, good news. It has zero to do with what you work up. It has everything to do with what he worked out. He is your way in. And if somehow this morning you're listening, you're like, yes, I get it. I get it. He's Lord. I, I, I get it. I believe. I, yeah. I don't know that I can live it out, but I mean, I want to follow him. Oh, that is a good sign, friends. <laughs> you could read that DNA test and be really happy today. Birthmark one, faith in Jesus. Birthmark two, freedom from sin. Birthmark one, faith in Jesus as Lord. Birthmark two, freedom from sin. And maybe for clarification, I would just say freedom from sin as Lord. Freedom from sin as Lord. You have a new boss. You have a new owner now. It's not freedom from sin insofar as like you never sin again. But it's freedom from sin is that it doesn't dominate your life anymore. Jesus does. I know that's hard. But this is a birthmark. There, there's some things in here that you could see that are uh, expressions of life, right? So like when, when you're born, well, that's life imparted, but then there's some things that show that you are still alive. You know, that's a, a beating heart, some brain function. Uh, you know, the initial life comes through believing in Jesus, but uh, the expression of life is evidenced through uh, ongoing commitment to Christ's lordship over sin, and like it, it changes you. You're, you're not dominated in the, in the same way anymore. Here, here's some... Um, Here's some actions. Here's some actions that will begin to, uh, to mark you if, indeed, you're of the line of God. Uh, notice in, let's see, verse, uh, well, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Hey, here's a good question to ask if you want to know if the spiritual life that you have is genuine. Do you continue to find yourself running to the word of God for counsel and input? Are you constantly trying to orient your life by his word? Now, this isn't some test. Do you read your Bible and pray every day? I'm not asking that. I'm just asking if your life is marked by continuing wanting to know what the Lord Jesus has done. That's why, hey, we're going to talk about this in our members meeting, but that's why we as elders and we think that the church as a whole should get really concerned when somebody just forsakes the fellowship and stops listening to the preaching of God's word. It doesn't seem that they're abiding, remaining in the Word of God. Maybe they're listening to podcasts. I don't know. But the fact that they would not avail themselves of just like the regular ministry of the Word in the church, the people of God who would love them and counsel them, is a sign that, whoa, that might not be a spiritual life there. Or if that is happening, you're here, you're like, why are you showing up? I mean, I hate to break it to you. I'm talking for an hour. You got to talk for an hour. No movies, nothing. You, you like that? You, you want that? Well, why? 
Because it's Christ's word. You abide in it. There's a second, second thing that expresses this freedom of sin. And notice this. It, go all the way over to verse uh, 40. 40. Yeah, verse 40. Uh, he says that, um, like, you will, oh, excuse me, verse 42. He says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. And I want you to know something, friends. If you love Jesus this morning, that is crazy rare. Most people look at Jesus and they think he is some foolish rabbi. He was some wannabe. He was some has-been if you actually love Jesus and like, I want to serve him with my life, I want you to know it's more radical than you could possibly imagine. That is a sign of life. Most people loathe Jesus, or at least would ignore him, and yet that marks someone who's freed from sin. They see Jesus for who he is and they love him. Do they love him perfectly? No, but they love him. I think we see enough there. There's faith in Jesus There's freedom from sin. And I would say, friends, let that either assure you or unsettle you. These are the facts of the matter. These are the the birthmarks of one who is actually begotten of God. This is what it means to be part of the family of God. If that unsettles you in any way, can I just be like really straightforward with you right now? I know we have a business meeting after. It's a bad day to have a business meeting from this perspective because I would want as many of our members to be available to talk to you before you leave today. So, talk to a member before you leave, and don't worry, they can miss the meeting. It's going to be all right. Or, I'm going to hang out in the lobby, but the truth is, if you are in any way unsettled by what has been spoken today, you should talk to someone who knows the Word of God so they can help you. Even if you need to fill out a connect card and we set up a time to meet this week, you need to be clear on whether or not you're part of the family of God. That's the unsettled. But maybe some of you are assured. Rejoice in that, rest in that. Did you do it perfectly this week? No. But do you have faith in Jesus? Yeah. Have you been freed unto new lordship? You're no longer dominated by sin, but you actually have a desire for Jesus and his word and you love him that is great news so let us not only examine ourselves but let us enjoy Christ for having placed us in his family and I want to close by exalting him in song together I want to pray and then our musicians will come and lead us in this final song of exaltation father in heaven give life to those who are dead Delight those who are alive and connect it all to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our rock, our redeemer, the great I am. May we enjoy him and share him with others in fresh ways this week as a result of what we've heard today. In Jesus' name, amen.